Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode features Ollie Hicks, and Ollie's accomplishments including rowing solo across the Atlantic Ocean from the USA to England after 124 days at sea, and at the time he did it, he was also the youngest to row any ocean solo. Ali also made the first row across the Tasman Sea from Tasmania to New Zealand through 96 days alone on the notoriously wild Southern Ocean. And if you caught episode 68 with Patrick Winterton, you also heard Ali's name there where we discussed the 200-mile crossing from the Shetland Islands to Norway in memory of the World War II Shetland bus operation. Well, following that, Ali and George Bullard pulled off an incredible trip from Greenland to Scotland. So let's hear about it. Enjoy today's episode with Ollie Hicks. Welcome, Ollie. Thank you for joining Paddling the Blue today. Hi, John. Lovely to uh, lovely to be with you. Yes, we've been uh, I've been pursuing you for for a while here, and it's nice that we finally finally connect. You're a busy man. Well, I don't know, busy or hopeless. Yeah, sorry <laughs> to be so elusive. No worries at all. Well, let's start with a, a little rundown of of your accomplishments and who you are as a paddler. So, tell us a little bit about you. Well, I guess. By way of background, I sort of spent a significant part of my life messing around on boats of one description or another. It's sort of, well, I messed around on boats as a kid uh, on the ocean, on the, or more, more on rivers and inland waterways. I guess that led to a, uh, a fascination with, with the water and boats. And when I was well, 23, I became the youngest person to row single-handed across the Atlantic which was really the culmination of a, of a childhood dream. When I was 13 years old, I saw a newspaper cutting about a guy called Peter Bird, who had been lost trying to row from Japan to San Francisco. And that really sparked my fascination, lifelong fascination, really, with, with ocean rowing. And so, yeah, after 10 years trying to pull that off, I, I did eventually uh, row the Atlantic, age 23. And then having four months or, or so alone at sea gave quite a lot of time, food for thought. And, and during that expedition or during that voyage, I came up with my next big expedition, which was to row uh, or attempt to row single-handed around Antarctica or around the bottom of the world through the Southern Ocean, which didn't quite go to plan. And uh, I had various other jobs working on yachts and uh, working skippering in the offshore wind farm industry so I've worked both uh, in expeditions in yachting and in this sort of commercial offshore space as well. After all the, uh, the rowing and the, which are quite expensive expeditions I transitioned essentially to uh, sea kayak journeys and met with met up with a guy called Patrick Winterton who became a great friend and uh, really led me astray down the route of offshore or ocean sea kayaking which is really a uh, pretty miserable sport and um yeah we we undertook several journeys across uh two across the north sea and one ultimately from from greenland to scotland uh trying to prove or add fuel to the fire of the myth that the inuit got to scotland in the 17th century and uh yeah i think that sort of brings us up to date John. all right so i i had an opportunity to talk with patrick just recently we talked about the the shetland bus Oh, the Shetland bus exactly was uh, really my, uh, you know, I, I've done uh, 
very sort of uh, recreational kayaking as a kid. I, I think I was given my first kayak when I was age seven, but um, I'd never really done any serious sea kayaking or anything offshore. And I exactly read about Patrick and uh, and his friend, teammate Mick Berwick, and their journey from uh, the Hebrides in Scotland up to up to the Faroe Islands, and was captivated by that trip. And so I got in touch because I've been vaguely looking at doing a a kayak journey from Iceland to Scotland, and um, they were the the most sort of approachable people. We connected in London. Uh, we had lunch on a park bench, and that began a. Uh, a series of very uncomfortable expeditions and exactly your point john the first one was the shetland bus trying to um or loosely connected to uh recreating the the journey that the shetland bus wartime operation undertook from from the shetland islands across the north sea to to norway so like patrick that journey had a story uh, kind of a backstory that went along with it so you and George Bullard did a kind of a mind-bending trip from Greenland to Scotland, and that had a backstory to it. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, the the Greenland to Scotland expedition was entirely Patrick's Patrick's baby or brainchild, uh-huh. or, or in large part. But it but actually the inspiration came from a book by a guy called uh, Norman Rogers, who wrote a book called Searching for the Finmen, and it was all about how the Inuit, or potentially the Inuit, had come to parts of Europe, Northern Europe, by kayak and the sightings of these strange-looking people with unusual clothing. And they'd landed everywhere from Norway to Ireland to Scotland to, I think, even parts of England. But the really, the hard proof came in 1728 when a, an Inuit tribesman was washed up on the beach in Aberdeen or near Aberdeen in a kayak with his hunting equipment all dressed in skins. And you know, the, the mystery obviously was how on earth had this guy got there and where had he come from? Anyway, the book explores all sorts of different uh, theories and, and ideas, but in a nutshell, we decided to try and paddle it a bit like a cold Contiki expedition to prove that he could have come by kayak all the way from the Greenland ice shelf or the Greenland ice sheets. And that was Patrick's baby after the Shetland bus, when straight after it, we both said we'd never get in a kayak again. <laughs> and then two weeks later, he was telling me about the uh, voyage of the Finn men <laughs> and uh so that was where that all started. So I'm certainly you you did the trip with a different level of technology than uh, was found in the 1700s. I, I can't imagine having done it in the 1700s. I can't imagine having done it at all. But <laughs> uh, for sure, I mean, <laughs> I mean, when we started the the planning and the the build up for voy- for the Greenland to Scotland expedition, which we also variously called the Voyage of the Finmen. We had done a lot of all the expeditions that Patrick and myself and Mick Berwick, who'd been really involved in the Shetland bus projects as well, because it took us three attempts to get across the North Sea. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a huge body of expertise out there in terms of trying to do several hundred mile sea crossings by kayak. And so we'd really learned by trial and error the challenges of crossing the, the sea in, in these small boats and I think it took us three attempts to get across the North Sea. Yeah, so so by the time we did the Greenland to Scotland project, we, it was really a, uh, we'd, we'd learned a huge amount through trial and error through these North Sea crossings through the Shetland bus, which took three attempts before we did actually get across. And we found that we we optimized our techniques. We used double boats because the single boats were too slow; they were too low to the water. 
you needed the speed to get across um, with with a modicum of safety, and then one person could stabilize the boat while the other person would cook or whatever it might be. So the Greenland to Scotland expedition was certainly a long time in the mix before we actually uh, came to do it. How long was the planning phase for this trip? The actual planning for Greenland to Scotland was probably only well under a year, but it was really the culmination of all the work that had gone into the the various North Sea crossings, the trial and error, what equipment worked, what didn't work. You know, the, the critical thing was really going in a double kayak. And we did, we adjusted the double kayak as well, so that it had a, a higher freeboard because by the time you loaded those boats up with enough supplies to do the crossings, then they get quite low in the water. And then if you're trying to sleep in them, you need that freeboard so that when you're sleeping in it, it's not constantly getting swamped and filling up with water from the waves. So... We modified a production kayak, working with a guy called Rob Falloy, who runs a, a little tiny little company called Inuk Kayaks. And I'd say it's partly commercial, but partly really a hobby. Rob had worked with us modifying boats for various trips. And um, he had a double kayak, it was called an Inuk 20, an Inuk Duo it was. And we basically used the same mould, but we cut the mould in half, stretched it and raised it. And um, that was how we ended up with the boat for the uh, Greenland expedition. But yeah, all in all, it was probably only uh, 10 months to get the boat right, to raise the sponsorship and, and get all the supplies in order. Then the the big change to the project was that, um, I suppose fairly early on in the planning, Patrick and I were going to be the team to do it, Patrick Winston and, and myself. And then Patrick had his first baby uh, during that time. And... That was the end of his involvement because, uh, you know, he had a new baby and the risk was a bit high uh, to make the journey. And so I had actually been talking for some time to this guy, George Bullard, who I knew through a um, through his cousin, weirdly. And um, he had a good track record in dragging sledges through across Greenland, I think. And... So I thought it was a very similar mentality that if you could drag sledges through a fairly featureless landscape for months on end, it was a good skill set for paddling a boat through a fairly featureless sea for um, weeks on end. <laughs> and um, uh, So we began some training together. George had done, I think, very little kayaking, but, you know, it's not rocket science and it's more about being able to endure the <laughs> discomfort and, and perhaps the boredom than it is the uh, uh, any being a you know a, a world champion kayaker and he we, he picked it up very quickly in fact he's probably a lot better than me and we were able the critical skill we wanted to do was to be able to roll this double kayak so if it uh, capsized or was upside down that we could flip it back up and we actually uh did quite a lot of training with uh, Jeff Allen, uh, who may have been on your podcast, John, yes. but he's a um, world-leading sea kayaker. And Jeff coached us quite a lot in, in how best to use the boat and how to do the double roll. And um, so that was a, a good learning curve. And yeah, that's how we came to be a, a, a pair. So George was a, a relative novice at, at sea kayaking at the time, then it sounds like. Well, yeah, arguably a total novice, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, now, what in addition to the to the role practice, um, what other types of training did you do leading up to it? Well, my, my view on these, these trips is, is generally the, uh, technically they're not that complicated, right? And mm -hmm. that's probably appeal is, you know, you need a, a boat which is going to be 
suitable and seaworthy. You need the requisite equipment that's going to keep you warm enough, dry enough, etc., for, for survival, enough provisions to keep the energy and, and all that sort of thing. So my effort and focus is normally on getting all the nuts and bolts in place. And that's what we did. We, we did do a, lot, like a, a good amount of training. We, you know, we're fit, we're strong. And we, but we didn't do as much training as people often think. I mean, we were probably, we were paddling, I guess, on the River Thames in London, I guess, three days a week, three times a week, rather, in the mornings before, before work. You know, just obviously we both maintained a good level of all-round fitness anyway. And then we did some trial journeys out to the Scilly Isles, which is some islands about 20 miles off the Cornish coast in the west of England. And that's a really nice training run because... You have a good mix of quite inhospitable coastline, strong tides. Um, you're, you're probably offshore, so you can't see the land. Quite a lot of shipping to, to contend with. Uh, often it's very foggy. And then where you actually land onto the islands, they're very low-lying. So until you really get to them, uh, it's very hard to see them. So it's quite a good navigational challenge as well. And I, th I think we made that journey three times, 120 miles of, of paddling. Um, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth um, okay. from the mainland to the Scilly Isles. And I think, to, we, I think we made a journey around the Isle of Wight. So, yeah, the nice thing with kayaking, obviously, is you, you can um, stick it on the top of your car and you can go pretty well anywhere. It's pretty easy logistically to do. And I think we were both living in London at the time, so we used to, we kept a kayak, you know, on the edge of the River Thames. So um, we had a fairly regular training schedule, but my focus was more on getting the equipment and supplies and of course the money you know yeah. <laughs> i'm sure your uh, guests you've had on all the time john must always talk about the challenges of raising the sponsorship and you know getting to the start line of these expeditions is, is to my mind far and away the hardest bit of them the actual once you get to paddling it's like your holiday starts <laughs> <laughs> so both you and george had uh, had extensive experience it sounds like yourself of course uh, four months rowing across the uh, the atlantic and um, other experiences, and then George uh, dragging sledges for months on end across Greenland. Uh, are there other ways that you are there ways that you prepared mentally for the trip? In no, I think in, in terms of mental preparation for the trip, you know, we'd already done the the training, and you know, rather like rock climbing, I think it's a hard thing to train or prepare for without doing it. So, you know, it, it's hard to train for paddling seventeen hours hours a day. You know, you can't. I mean, what are you going to do? Go and sit on a kayak machine or a kayak ergo in a gym for 17 hours? I mean, well, some people might like that, but you'll be flipping mad to do yeah. that if you ask me. Yeah, I'd rather get in the boat and and uh, and start the project. And that's what I mean. As long as you have a good level of general fitness, maybe a little bit more so with kayaking because it's a very specific sort of action and and you do use quite uh, unusual muscle groups, etc. But um, you know, certainly with the ocean rowing I've done, I actually spent very little time on ocean on on rowing machines and that sort of thing because you know once you've done two weeks rowing all day every day, then you're going to be in pretty good shape. But um, you know, beyond having good general conditioning, <laughs> I don't think you want to spend too long uh, training for that specifically. And, and again, to my point, as long as you've got the equipment right and the plan right and the logistics and the funding, then actually that's going to make everything else fall into place pretty well. And, and, and so it proved to be really, I would say the Greenland to Scotland trip may be born out of, you know, the, the experience I, I had from all sorts of other things was actually this, the smoothest, best managed expedition I, I'd ever done in my expedition career. That's good to hear. 
So walk us through uh, the trip itself. Uh, so Greenland to Scotland, we we actually perversely we drove <laughs> we drove from London to Iceland, which you do by um, crossing the Channel, driving to Denmark, and getting on a ferry. And uh, we took the ferry from Denmark up to Iceland with a kayak on the roof. We had a sponsored Land Rover, and so we drove all the way. And then we drove up to the northeastern, no, northwestern corner of Iceland to a little area called um, Isafjorda. Isafjorda is mm-hmm. the town. And that's the closest point of Iceland to Greenland. Um, so we made our final preparations there, loading the boat, uh, packing the, the sort of remains of our kit and, and all that sort of thing. And we then boarded a, uh, a yacht, a sailing yacht called... Um, Aurora Arctica, which was run by a guy, funny enough, who I'd, I'd worked with in Antarctica, called Siggy, um, Siggy Johansson, I think. And he runs a business called Aurora Expeditions, and they run a couple of charter yachts out of northeast, northwest Iceland. And the idea was that we'd sail up, we'd sail up to Greenland, and they would dump us on the, on the Greenlandic coast, on the beach, and then we'd paddle all the way back. And so that would start our journey. And so that was broadly what we did. They sailed us up, but unfortunately the ice pack was too thick, so we never actually got to the to the beach of Greenland itself. We could see the Greenland mountains, and I think we were about 40 miles off the beach. So we started 40 miles off in the ice pack. Uh, we were in the, the yacht we were in was a fiberglass yacht, so the, the captain didn't want to go into the ice anymore. And whilst that hadn't been the plan, we were not that sort of disappointed because the idea or sticking with the story is you know the the Inuit paddlers would have started from the ice edge so we were effectively starting from the ice edge and so we hauled the boat over the side and I had that sort of green light moment I was actually my fiance was on the boat I'd recently been engaged and she was on the boat and is that sort of green light moment where you have to go from a nice warm bunk with you know hot coffee and food and a comfortable yacht, and uh, put on a sort of uh, stinky old dry suit, and <laughs> get into a tiny, a tiny kayak. And you know that the water up there is so black; is is a very threatening environment. Anyway, we had uh, I think Red Bull were making a film about it, so we they were rolling their cameras, and so of course we had to get going. So we chucked the uh, kayak in the water. We got in and really started paddling. And Siggy's yacht was alongside. I think the film crew said they wanted to be alongside for hours and hours filming. I was like, okay, well, we don't want to be supported, so you can't you can't follow us all the way. But if you have to do your filming, do your filming. And then, <laughs> anyway, sure enough, after about three hours, or maybe it was even less, they got bored of their filming and <laughs> <laughs> they sailed back to Iceland and we continued paddling. And, you know, we, we felt pretty good because we were fresh, we were strong, we were sort of, you know, full of that, that sort of excitement at the beginning of the trip. The weather was pretty gentle, just a big sort of rolling swell, but um, actually fine conditions for paddling. And, and we had sails on our kayak as well, so we could um, sail and paddle at the same time because it's no good just sailing because you get freezing cold. Mm-hmm. And actually the what the sails really do is they, they take a lot of load out of the boat. So they don't particularly give you a lot more speed than paddling alone, but they really, because the boat was, say, I don't know, 250 kilos 
fully loaded, maybe maybe three hundred, certainly three hundred with us in it. So that's a lot of load going through your wrists and, and and your bodies. So just having the sails up really takes a lot of that load out and gives you a, a bit more momentum. So we sailed whenever we could, or would paddle and sail at the same time. So we were making really good speed, and um, we quickly fell into a sort of routine where we would paddle. And of course, at this time of year, we had twenty four. We had the midnight sun, right? so it didn't get dark and we quite quickly left the ice behind. I think we probably were only in, in the ice pack for um, two or three hours uh, before we got clear of the ice. And then, and it wasn't that thick. It was like, um, you know, probably uh, two, two tenths, uh, if that's the right expression. And um, mm-hmm. then we're into the open ocean, just cracking on, paddling on a bearing to back to Iceland. Yeah, we, we sort of settled into a routine where we were doing about 17 hours paddling and after 17 hours, really, you're too tired. And then you were tired enough to sleep in the uh, confines of the kayak. So you'd wriggle down inside and pull up the, the hoods over the over the cockpits and then have a uh, have a sleep and, until you got cold and then you continue paddling. And, and ultimately, we got to, we, we made it across the uh, the Denmark Strait, it's called, very quickly. I'm trying to remember how, how quickly we got across. But I think in a... In about fifty or sixty hours, we got across, and actually, but we we had to make a phone call to the uh, film crew to say, "Oh, we're going to arrive into um, a little bay called Hornvik, which is on the same peninsula as Isafjorda in northwest Iceland. Very beautiful, uh, only accessible by sea, no roads in there, and um, yeah, we we knew we were going to get there about ten hours out. We um, we told the film guys, and by the time they were telling us to slow down because we were so fast because they still had to sail all the way around. And uh, we're like, we're not slowing down for anybody. Yeah. The, the wind and the weather had really got up now and we had breaking waves coming on the boat and we just wanted to get in, right? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> uh, and you can't sit still in a kayak, right? If you're not moving, then you're freezing. So right. you got to keep moving and keep going. So we um, we pressed on and we landed in, uh, in this beautiful bay with snow-capped mountains, uh, in Hornvik, Sandy Beach, and um, we were just obviously elated because we'd made this crossing. We, I thought it was going to be the hardest crossing of the journey of the ocean crossings that we had to do because of the cold and and the Denmark Strait has a sort of pretty uh, fearsome reputation. You know, it's where all the ice comes down from the Arctic. Um, it was very cold, but actually we'd, we'd made the journey, we'd made it sort of feel pretty easy other than say the last 10 10 or 12 hours when we got pretty hammered by the weather but um so no and then we made ourselves comfortable in in uh, hornvik set up our camp and washed off all the salt and, and we had two modes of travel really one was for these uh, ocean crossings where we would travel in a sort of alpine style if you like so we'd travel as fast and light as possible and then when we were traveling around the coast we would um we would kit the kit the boat up a bit more, and we would load on the uh, the, the tent and uh, some more rations, more more provisions. Uh, what else did we have? Yeah, mainly just the tent, I guess. But we we could carry a bit more gear when we were hopping around the coast, fishing gear and that sort of thing. Did you stage some of that gear in Iceland so you could pick it up once you got there and then travel Iceland with it? That's that's exactly exactly right. So when we so the film crew carried some of the uh, tents and, and equipment for us. Yeah, so whenever we saw them, they must have given us that extra kit when they came to Hornvik eventually. Okay. 
exactly we were able to kick the boat up or down for those legs. You mentioned uh, sleeping in the boat. What was your sleeping system like? So our finely honed sleeping system. It's a, it's a state secret, John, but uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you, I mean, you know the layout of a kayak, right? So yeah. the only place you can sleep is either in your seat or, or lying down. And so we'd always extended the kayak so that you could lie down inside it and you put your, your wriggle down inside a bit like a coffin. And then you put your head on the seat. Um, so the seat becomes your pillow and it's not as easy as it sounds because of course all your kit is also in the cockpit so between your legs you have little dry bags of food and water bags so you have to sort of rejig all that kit and and actually on the ocean crossings we had to and of course we had life-saving gear as well so we had life uh, life rafts and a sea anchor and you know endless paraphernalia as you can imagine water um so before we could get in we had to pull all this out and then you'd lash that to the decks enable you to get in and then once you're in and you could once your head was on the seat then you would pull up the uh the sort of canopy over your head which folded down either side of the cockpit a bit like a like a convertible roof on a car or like a pram hood and then that had a waterproof zip which would zip together and, and just keep the wind and the water out. It wasn't watertight, but it was, you know, fairly waterproof, water resistant, we can say. And mm-hmm. um, once that was up, it, the, the temperature seemed would, would be okay. And we'd also lined the cockpit with, with insulation. So we had, um, you know, foam, foam insulation inside the cockpit. And we also had chemical heat packs, which we could put inside our dry suits to keep us warm. And we would get generally before we would go down to sleep we would try and eat a hot meal to keep your core body temperature pretty good and the other key part of sleeping was you have to deploy the floats so you put two sets of big big uh, buoyancy bags either side of each paddler and they'd be lashed lashed to the boat and then once you deploy the floats then you would put out a sea anchor and the sea anchor would be streamed off the bow so that would keep the, the bow into the waves so really getting ready to sleep was quite a performance hence only you, you would try and only do it once in a 24-hour period yeah, I was wondering about that. You mentioned you had all that gear in the boat, all that, all that kit, and you had to take that out and lash it to the deck. And I'm thinking, well, now you're making the, the deck and the boat top heavy, uh, but those sponsons are, would certainly help that. Yeah, so you've got the sponsons, and then, of course, when you're lying in the boat, then you're acting a bit like a like ballast or a keel because you're you know, right in the bottom. And so these, the sleeping system sounds like you, you learned a lot from the Shetland bus and were able to apply that. Yeah, I mean, the Shetland bus was, was critical. The first time we launched on the Shetland bus was a bit of a disaster, and we'd gone in three single boats, unmodified, and was me, Patrick, and Mick, and we rafted up the first night, and our rafting system was inadequate, didn't really work. The boats were bumping together and, you know, at risk of getting damaged. It was pretty rough. And the first morning, we well, say we woke up. We hadn't really slept much, but we all had hypothermia. Mick and Patrick were really seasick, and... It didn't take very long for us to decide to turn around. Um, so from there, it only got better in terms of how we prepared ourselves and using the double boat and having better sort of sleeping arrangements, better equipment, because it's just been so uh, so uncomfortable that that first trip out, and not to, not to mention dangerous. So from Greenland to Iceland, uh, for the most part, with exception of that last 10, 12 hours, it sounds like you had pretty good conditions. Yeah, I mean, part of the whole trip was that we we did have reasonably good conditions you know we were really watching the weather because 
you know, in, in the kayak, you have relatively uh, limited margin for error in terms of weather. Therefore, we're really picking our weather windows, picking our opportunities to cross. And by and large, the weather, we called the weather pretty well. We called it pretty right. We got a bit sort of, uh, I don't know, um, not complacent, but we weren't checking the weather as carefully as we probably should have actually when we were doing the coastal journeys. And we, we definitely had wor much worse weather crossing around, um, certainly crossing uh, or tra traversing the sort of Icelandic coast where the weather gets really nasty, lots of sort of very strong coastal conditions, sea breezes, land breezes, you know, sort of not quite catabatic winds, but very strong local conditions, winds funneling through the fjords or out of the fjords. So I'd say we had, on the whole, we had worse weather on the coastal legs than, than on the ocean legs because we were, obviously we were more um, cautious on the ocean because there's nowhere to, nowhere to hide, whereas at least anyway, that's how we sort of approached it. Yeah, we really had some, some pretty hairy moments going around some of the coastline. So you made it from Greenland to, to Iceland in, in pretty quick time. You said 50-some-odd hours. Um, what was your expectation for that part? Uh, well, I think it's about 180 miles, that crossing. So, I mean, 180 miles. I think it's similar to the to the Norway crossing we did on the Shetland bus, which we'd done in 60, I think 68 hours. So anything quicker than 68, we were happy with. We were always faster than we had anticipated in the planning. The boat was fantastic that Rob had built. It was a carbon fiber boat, it was really quite light and fast. And it was very long, you know, it was 7.4 meters, I think. So it had a really good waterline length and the hull speed. And once you got it up to speed, it sort of would maintain it. Uh, it would track really well. Um, we had a couple of skegs on it, so you didn't have to steer all the time with the rudder. Yes, it was testament to Rob Falloy and his sort of uh, expertise as well. But we were normally pretty quick. Uh, now you're in Iceland. Uh, tell us about the conditions there. So Iceland, we, as I said, we, we um, in Iceland, we, yeah, we switched to um, our sort of land mode of travel or our, our coastal travel. So we, we kitted up the boat with a bit more food and, and the tents, camping stuff. Then we would just sort of hop hop along the coast, camping as we went. It's a beautiful coastline. It's like crocodile's teeth, sort of, um, or like the Norwegian coast. It's, you know, uh, lots of deep fjords. So we were really sort of straight lining across all the big fjords wherever we could, just picking our way from bay to bay. We didn't really have any fixed idea of where we were going to camp or stop or any sort of specific uh, mileages to do each day. We were just taking each day as it came and getting as far as we could and ended up in some, some beautiful sort of uh, campsites, some of the not ca or, you know camping spots. And along the way, there's, they have these refuge huts in Iceland for shipwrecked mariners. And so there was a few places we were able to stay in the refuge huts. And, and we saw it's quite remote, even though there is a perimeter road around pretty well the whole island it doesn't go all the way to obviously the tips of all the peninsulas and, and the fjords even though there's reasonably good access all the way around the island a lot of it is is very remote and sparsely populated especially about north coast and the far east coast so yeah it felt like a proper a proper adventure and we saw very little um very few other boats very few fishing boats and things yeah we, we had a great a great time actually i would say it was a one of the highlights of the trip was going around iceland and the different landing conditions and trying to cross the fjords and riding out the gales and pushing through gales and you know the different sort of camping spots we'd end up in each night. And so how long were you on Iceland? Uh, the whole trip was nine weeks, the majority of which was really Iceland. So we must have been two, we must have been a good two weeks going around Iceland, two or three weeks maybe. 
All right. And then uh, now you're getting ready to leave Iceland. So you're shedding some kit and stripping the boat down to make it light and fast again. So then as we got to the, you know, all the, the routing, as you can imagine, was just geared around getting to the shortest distances. So Greenland to, to Scott, Greenland to Iceland had been the shortest distance from across the Denmark Strait. And then similarly from Iceland to Faroes was our next leg. And for good reason, there's like a nasty piece of water. It's known as the devil's dance floor because you get a lot of the North Atlantic storms and gales tracking up through the gap between um, South, South and East Iceland and the Faroe Islands. So we, yeah, we found the sort of closest point pretty well, which was a little village called, little fishing village called Sedisfjorda. And we were waiting there. No, we actually started our first departure. We started from another fishing village called Neskupstada on the East Coast. And we'd been waiting quite a long time for the, for the weather window. We'd been watching the weather, just sort of kicking our heels, waiting for the weather, drinking some beer and, and eating hamburgers, waiting for the weather <laughs> to get good. But the boat was packed and ready to go. So really, in it. it's like sort of sitting in base camp. Anyway, eventually we get a weather forecast and it wasn't great. It looked like we we're going to have a day of bad weather before it turned pretty good. So we'd, we'd paddle into 24 hours of bad weather and then it would be improving, but we thought that was better than the uh, uh, reverse. And, and the trouble with that, this, this particular leg was that you could only really rely on weather forecasting in that area for, I would say, 48 hours, maximum 72, because it's such a rapidly changing system there. So... After that 72 hours, and we, we thought it was going to take us four or five days to get across this leg, then you're gambling with what the weather's got in store for you, right? It's better to take the bad, the sort of moderate weather early and, and then hope it's getting better rather than take really wait for really good weather with a view that it could then deteriorate further. So that was the sort of gamble we were uh, working to. Anyway, we set off into the lousy weather, made really pretty poor progress for the first 24 hours. And the fir- that, that morning we were waking up and it was a lovely, calm, sunny day and we carried on. We'd only made sort of 30 or 40 miles the day before versus our best days were like 70 miles plus. But we thought then the bad weather was out of the way, we'd, we'd get on. And we saw a fishing boat, one of the first fishing boats we'd seen on the whole Iceland trip. And they came over, they're like, what the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> um, we tell them we're going to uh, Pharaohs and da, da, da. Anyway, then... They're really saying you've got to come back and they tell us there's a big storm coming and we need to go back with them or we're going to die. And we're like, well, that's not the weather information that we have. So we said, oh, we can, actually, we're going to carry on. So we do. We carry on into this good weather. We're pretty, you know, pretty cheerful and making great progress, sails up, flying along. And then maybe a couple of hours later, they're steaming after us, blowing the horn and um, they catch up with us and. Now they're really pleading with us to go back with them. And uh, it's like a 50-foot cod fishing, cod long liner. And they said, the Coast Guard wants you to come back. We want you to come back. It's like 70, I can't remember what they said, 60 knots of wind coming tonight. You know, you're going to you're gonna be toast. <laughs> um, so we're like, oh, all right. That's not the information we've got. But we said, can you wait just 10 minutes? We just phone up the weather team and see what they say. So we phoned up our two weather forecasters, one of whom said, if there's a boat there, you should get on it. <laughs> and the other guy said, you should carry on. Um, you'll be fine. Uh, weather looks okay. So anyway, we had a quick sort of Chinese parliament and we decided that we would go with the greater, the, the advice of the greater number. So we, we got craned onto the fishing boat or we clambered out and then they 
they craned the kayak onto the roof of the fishing boat and we went back with them, back to Iceland. And we never really know what about the weather. I mean, it was, it was pretty rough, but nothing crazy. Right. And, you know, we would have been so far east that um, it was hard to know if we would have got taken out or not. But um, it led to sort of one of the best parts of the trip because we then ended up working on this fishing boat for, for a week or so, catching cod. And so we were working on the long liner and then every day we would go back and we'd stand there and they had a sort of um, a fishing house. So we stayed in the fishing house at night and worked with these guys for, for a week or so while we waited for the next weather or window to materialize. And then when it did, we, we set off again and we got a really good weather window and we got across that next leg in, in four days, across the Faroes, second time lucky. You know, had really good uh, conditions and the longest leg of it was nearly 300 nautical miles, that one, which was certainly the longest we'd ever done. And so, you know, it was outside our experience, but we flew along, made good time. And by the time we, yeah, we arrived into the Faroe Islands, right in the north of the Faroe Islands, where there's a, a channel that splits the, the main island. And we arrived in there and, um, and landed on a beach called... Oh, I can't remember, but uh, this beautiful sandy beach, a great little surf beach. It was very flat calm when we arrived, but past some big towering sort of rock towers called the Witch and the Giant. Again, the uh, the film people were really uh, livid because we arrived in the dark. So it wasn't oh. very good for their filming. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that your landing in North Rona or was that prior to that point? No, that was in that was in the north of the Faroe Islands. So we we were then waiting for the. Uh, we were quite late in the season now, so we okay. were, I think, get, getting towards um, the end of August, and we were now we needed to wait for the weather so we could get the next leg to Scotland. So we we paddled down through the Faroe Islands, and we ended up in Torshavn, which is the the capital of the Faroes. And you know that's, a, that's just quite a sort of uh, like any European town in a way you know it's got coffee shops and fashion shops and whatever you need so we were just waiting there for the weather window to to be good and they're mad about rowing and like the national sport there is is rowing so we kept the boat in one of the rowing clubs and we washed it and washed the kayak and dried it got it ready for the next ocean leg it's hard after you've been in the kayak for four days at sea even though it'd been an easy crossing you know i couldn't feel one of my legs (laughs) Numb, numbness in my leg for, for months afterwards mm. um so you know it was nice to have some uh, some downtime in the in the pharaohs in Torshavn. we got stuck there for some time waiting for a good weather window but we spent some of the time paddling further south through the sort of pharaohs archipelago through the chain of islands and positioned the kayak and the furthest south island called Suderoy. from there was 180 miles still to go to scotland so you know, we were nearly there. It was a 1,200-mile journey. We only had 200 miles left to go. But the weather was getting worse. We're later in the season, so we're just hoping we're going to get a, a window. We only needed, like, 48 or 72 hours to get down and finish the trip, but no guarantees we were going to get that weather at that time of year. Anyway, sure enough, we are trying to remember if we had a, I don't think we had any false starts this time, but... Um, we had a few weather windows which actually never materialised, but we didn't uh, set out. 
Anyway, very strong sea conditions around the Faroes, very strong currents, lots of breaking waves, lots of surf landings, because, you know, really, it's just really an archipelago in the, in the middle of the uh, North Atlantic, so it's very exposed to all the swells and huge ocean waves going through there. Anyway, we get the uh, we get a, fun, uh, a weather window finally, and we set off one evening with a view that we would just press on and carry on the last leg all the way to Cape Roth or near Cape Roth in Scotland, and... Off we went. We're pretty uh, fatigued now, pretty sort of tired of, of paddling. I can imagine. After the best part of nine weeks or whatever. Yeah, off, off we go. And it's quite calm. And um, we actually both fell asleep, I think, that night, just as we were paddling along. And we were both really hallucinating a lot. And it was very, very calm, I seem to remember. And we'd been hallucinating about whales all around the boat and I woke up and I thought we were in the middle of a cathedral square and yeah, we were pretty uh, <laughs> we were pretty cooked by then. Anyway, we carried on the next day. It was a beautiful day. We had the sail. It wasn't a breath of wind. We had the sails up, but not a breath of wind. And then we phoned, we checked in with the weather guy. We found out the weather guys and they said, oh, you need to um, get ashore as <laughs> quickly as you can because there's a force 10 gale coming. Whoa. We seemed so incongruous, right? Because we were in, you know, we were in like uh, tops off, um, flat, flat, calm water. So it was hard to believe there was a storm coming. Luckily, we, we knew that North Rona was our, really our only option as a somewhere we could take refuge. So we made our course immediately for North Rona. And we knew we were about 12 hours out from there. But we paddled through that night, I think. And then we... As we arrived at dawn, we could see it. That's right. It's got a lighthouse on North Rhone and we arrived and we could see it at night, but we certainly didn't want to land at night. So we just put the sea anchor out, waited till dawn. And then at dawn, we were paddling around the island, trying to find somewhere we could land. And it was just, it looked okay from a distance, but as soon as you got close, you could hear the, the surf smashing into these rocky uh, shores. So we had to really do sort of, you know, a bit of a recce to find somewhere we could potentially land. And... Eventually, we found a, a bit of a quieter place, and, and so I jumped out of the boat and swam ashore and climbed up, and then I ran around some of the coast <laughs> to, to find out where we could land. And I found this little inlet on the backside of the island. So we, so I got back, climbed out, climbed back in the sea, swam out to the boat, and then we paddled it back round into this inlet. And again, we climbed out, unloaded the boat, and carried it up these very uh, slippery, steep rocks. And then sure enough, literally two hours after we landed, this huge gale came in. And thank God we had got ashore when we had, because we really wouldn't have wanted to be on the ocean in those conditions. And it would have been very, very hard to land once that storm had started, if not impossible. Anyway, then we, we ended up stuck on North Rona for, for about a week in the end, while this storm was raging pretty well all the time. We were then trying to sort of monitor the weather. We had very limited batteries to... to keep getting weather reports and so we had to really manage our energy and our power and we had actually pretty limited food as well we only had what was in the boat except we ended up in a refuge hut um there was a refuge hut or i think it was a scientific research hut on north rona where they had quite a lot of moldy supplies but we uh, managed to find some stuff which wasn't moldy and we augmented our diet with some seabirds we were able to catch some seabirds yeah so we we enjoyed our week stuck on the island um, before we were able to set off because then we were only 50 miles off from Scotland. So it was so clear, so near, so near the finish. After, I think, six days on the island, we were able to get another another shot. 
we powered across the last leg um, through the through the night. We we set off again one evening and um, arrived in uh, off Cape Roth the following morning at dawn and um, paddled along that northern northwestern tip of Scotland. Very beautiful before open, coming into the Durness Balnakiel Bay, this sort of beautiful sandy bay. I don't know if you know the north coast of Scotland, John, but it's no, sort no. of a, it's a sort of Caribbean almost <laughs> landscape. You know, beautiful sandy beaches, very green, but obviously, <laughs> unlike the Caribbean, it's freezing cold. <laughs> After nine weeks on, on on that expedition, we ended up coming ashore on this beautiful sandy beach with a, a sort of Scottish baronial castle and a big herd of uh, Aberdeen Angus cattle grazing on the seaweed on the. <laughs> on the tide line and um yeah we landed there and that was um yeah a successful conclusion to the trip and uh well whether the inuit had made that journey or not i'm not sure how much uh insight we had we had gleaned into that because obviously we used a modern boat with modern equipment and um and, and critically we had the weather forecasting ability you know yeah we met a guy in the Faroes who had a really original Inuit sort of Greenland style kayak. <laughs> when we saw it, we were like, no way could you have got across the ocean in that because there's so little volume in them. Uh, you couldn't even keep any food or any water. And because they're, they're just, you know, they're greased skins or oiled skins, but they only retain their waterproofness for, uh, I think, a few days at a time and then they need to be re-oiled. So our, our feeling was it was pretty unlikely that he'd made the journey, but who knows? Maybe yeah. he did. Yeah. So what would you say your your highlight of the trip was, other than uh, landing in Scotland? Uh, I think our high, my highlight for the trip was really exploring exploring the Icelandic coast under our own steam. It's a pretty fantastic country, you know, wonderful people, very good fishing. The second big highlight really was the uh, was working on the on the fishing boat, <laughs> uh, working on the long liner was fantastic. All right, who would have ever expected that to have been your highlight? Well, and the third highlight was not having to paddle anymore. <laughs> uh, if you if you were to do it again, what would you do different? I think we, I mean, uh, you know, I said earlier about the planning and the preparation and the the management. I think. Uh, as trips go, that was the, like the the best trip I've ever done in terms of the execution. In in a way, it was kind of uh, in a way it was a bit boring because we managed all the uh, sort of adventure out of it in some respects. Because you have to be cautious with the kayaking, you know, the uh, some of the jeopardy, I guess, or was, was removed. But difficult to get away from that in the modern world. Arguably irresponsible not to do that sort of uh, due diligence, but I'm not sure what we would change. It would have been nice, perhaps, to start on the actual Greenlandic coast, so we might have changed the ice conditions. But in terms of actually equipment, or you know, or timing, or logistics, or any, it it all went as well as uh, any expedition could do. I would say, you know, it would have nice would have been nice to have Patrick have Patrick along since it was his sort of baby, but. At the same time, you know, Patrick gets really seasick, so I don't know how I would have how he would have found it in the end. When we did the Shetland bus, it was uh, a sixty-eight hour crossing, but he found it very hard to take on much food. So he might have really struggled with with some multiple long sea crossings if he couldn't maintain his sort of you know calorific intake. So I'm not sure, you know, in in a way, John, I don't, I don't know. All right. I'm not sure I would have changed much. 
So the distance from Greenland to Iceland was about 186 miles, you said. And then Iceland to, to Scotland, or I guess Iceland to the Faroes, was about 300 miles. Yet your time yeah. from Iceland, sorry, Greenland to Iceland was about 50 hours. Why so much more, four to five days, um, expected for just that extra added 100 miles? Good question. Well, I suppose the the uh, sorry the Greenland Iceland journey would have been shorter because say it's a hundred and eighty mile gap, we probably were forty miles off that to one hundred and forty miles probably. Mm -hmm. So then, say it was a forty eight hour crossing, that'd be about right, yeah. Okay. Um, so we were doing double double on the Faroes on the Faroes gap. So if that was a four day crossing, yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. Um, when you put it that way, because we weren't, you know, we didn't have the full Denmark straight to cross because of the ice. And we did have very good conditions on both legs, really. Right. And, but yeah, good point. I don't know if we had really favorable currents on the uh, on the Faroes bit. I don't know why it was so fast. I think that was when we had our record day was a 70 mile day. That roll that you'd worked on, did you have to use that? <laughs> no, ne ne well, never. We never had to use it in anger. The only time we nearly capsized was actually um, we got caught inside the surf zone traversing the pharaohs down to the south of the pharaohs but we managed to brace into the wave and, and we didn't get rolled thankfully we didn't because even if we had rolled it there we would have been inside the surf and probably got smashed by another wave <laughs> oh yes so what did you learn that you can apply to future trips i think what we really learned was the boring preparation and the preparation is key when i said it was the best planned it was, it was the best sort of financed you know we had ample ample sort of cash resource we had a really good uh, shore team. We had the sort of shore team were well equipped. We were well equipped, and so everything just sort of worked at every stage. You know, it was a, I guess a different, funny operating environment because it's not super remote. We were in Iceland, so if we needed, for example, we broke the kayak a few times, and we had to get some spare uh, skegs, and we were able to get those ordered into Iceland and get them delivered. So we weren't operating, you know, totally off off grid. It just helps your planning and your execution so much if you've got all those resources that you need in place. So you're not rushing, you're not sort of stressed because, oh, you haven't got enough money, you're not trying to cut corners. Whereas the, when it took us three times to get across the Shetland bus, you know, we never had any money. We were doing it very much on the side of our sort of working lives. And the, the Greenland to Scotland thing I was doing professional I was doing it full-time so I think if you have all those resources in place you know just what you can accomplish is incredible whereas often you know the nature of these trips is they're they're not so sort of professionally run or managed or put together and 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 then things can come unstuck which then perhaps you know if, if, if parts of the trip go wrong those, those chinks in the armor can be exploited whereas this trip we'd been able to really um, have a pretty watertight plan and didn't have to leave any gaps in the in the planning or the resourcing and i think that's a really privileged position to be in which i've never been in on any other trip so who were the uh, the sponsors that uh, that helped you along the way our main sponsor was virgin and richard branson and we also had newscape capital uh, which is a london investment firm and then we had a stack of uh, equipment sponsors like Kokotak, you'll be familiar with. Mm -hmm. Kokotak's gear, I think, is like second to none for kayaking, especially. They were fantastic. And uh, Iridium, we had Iridium sponsored our satellite phone gear. We had Hilleberg Tent um, sponsor. We had Tent TP, which the 
film crew used for their accommodation. Um, what else do we have? We have uh, Land Rover sponsored us for the vehicle. We had watershed, watershed bags were superb. You know, the, the hardest thing in these expeditions is, is raising cash. And that's where Virgin and, you know, those financial sponsors are, are invaluable. Looking back, was it fun? Yeah, I think it was an incredible journey and, and it went well almost in its entirety. You know, some of it was a bit protracted and we got stuck for longer than we might have hoped during for waiting for weather windows. And by by the end of the journey, you know, we'd been waiting in the pharaohs for ages. So I think we would have liked to complete it faster. But in the round, it was a fantastic uh, expedition. One of the best ones I've been on. And, and we achieved it. You know, I think there was a high probability of not completing it. You know, when we started, you know, it was enormously ambitious. I don't know. I think, you know, you look at these trips in hindsight, having done them and you're like, yeah, well, you know, what's the big deal? But actually it was much more likely than not that we would not succeed on that journey. And I think the fact that we did was, you know, was a, a nice balance of planning, management, luck, etc. I think what really underpinned it was the sort of trial and error that we'd previously done on the Shetland bus expeditions or the North Sea crossings where we've learned so much that enabled the, the, the equipment to be designed better and, and right. Um, and that trial and error was really invaluable. So it was a, a cocktail of circumstances and experience which served to create a fantastic trip. And the weather was pretty good. You know, we could have had a lousy summer of awful weather. Sure. But on the whole, we had pretty good weather. You know, I, I think back on it very fondly. Now, a key part of that planning um, was your short team. So uh, so what what made up your short team? Really, our short team was... My wife, my parents, and the, the the film crew to some extent. I mean, they didn't have, you know, we, we were unassisted, basically. Mm-hmm. But from time to time, of course, we would meet with the film crew. We didn't see them every night, certainly. They didn't come to because they couldn't get to all of our camp spots or they had other things to do. But from time to time, they would resupply us. From time to time, we'd stop in villages or, or a town. We were quite self-supported, but being able to... We, we used... Um, a friend of mine who's worked as our my expedition sort of manager for a long time called Victoria Nicholson. She runs something called Chase Expeditions, which is a sort of expedition management company. And then another friend of mine who's always acted as my expedition medic doctor, Dr. Flora Bird. So we had a, a, a good array of professional backup uh, coupled with a sort of informal support network in, in the shape of my wife and my parents and I think my parents actually came to Iceland and also to Faroes and to Scotland and fulfilled you know, a role both as a logistics and also as a morale. So I heard a rumor of a bear following you from Greenland. Is there any truth to that rumor? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the, the story was that a bear. We landed in Hornvik, and some days later, or. Oh, the next day we land on the next door peninsula to the to the what to the east forget what it was called and just the day before this bear exactly a polar bear had come ashore and it had swum all the way from greenland or from an ice flow uh, in the denmark strait whether it had followed us i don't know it seems like a <laughs> uh, but there's there's many accounts of polar bears following kayakers and look out because they, they swim faster than you can paddle so <laughs> We, were, we carried a rifle on board for exactly that eventuality and that poor old polar bear that <laughs> that got out in uh, in Iceland, he was unfortunately, he was shot. And, and it happens, I think, from, 
you know, it's not an unusual occurrence that polar bears are ending up in Iceland. So he swims all that way to get shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Gee, gee, thanks, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what's next on your adventurous list? You mentioned a, a big paddle around the Southern Ocean. Yeah, for sure. It's unfinished business, right? I tried in 2010 to kayak, uh, to row rather, to row around Antarctica, and I've got to finish that journey. And in 2010, I got from Tasmania to New Zealand, and then due to problems with the boat, I had to suspend that trip there. And so it's really waiting to be picked up and, and, and finished off. Yeah, life's a bit busy at the moment, but I very much have that trip on my agenda, on my radar still, and just need to find some space and find some sponsors who want to <laughs> partner on that on that expedition because that's a long one that'll be a year a year at sea and uh, it's 18,000 miles through the southern ocean so that's a, a big one and you've got to get that right yeah that's who you need to speak to next John is Fedor Konyukov who has uh, made the longest part of that journey so far across the, the Pacific leg of the southern ocean a couple of years ago and he was going to do the rest of that journey I don't know if, if he's still planning to do so all right, so Theodor Konikov. Fedor Konikov, yeah, he's a Russian Orthodox priest and uh, perhaps the uh, world's greatest explorer. All right, well, I will, uh, I'll definitely connect with you offline here and uh, we'll get uh, Fedor's information and see if we can get him as, the, uh, as one of the future guests and uh, as, as one you'd recommend. So how can listeners reach you if, you, if they've got additional questions? People can, can get in touch through my website, which is just ollyhicks.com, O-L-L-Y-Hicks.com. Well, we will add that to the show notes. Uh, and if you've got any other resources, we'll certainly uh, put those in there. And I know there's some written accounts of the story as well, so we can add some of that stuff in there. Ali, this has been wonderful. It's been fantastic uh, learning from you, learning about Greenland to Scotland and uh, all the trials and tribulations and the and the joy that you experience. If you want to be trip, a stronger and more efficient planning paddler, process sounds amazing. Power to the paddle right. is packed it's with a fitness guidance that, that and made complete descriptions along with Absolutely. photos of more well, than 50 Well, thank you very much for your time to improve Brilliant. your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. That's a whole lot of water. Something about this trip really intrigued me in a different way. Every trip we've shared has different motivations and different points that I've found fascinating. And Greenland to Scotland is just one that it sounds like water that humans shouldn't be able to cross in a small boat. I really enjoyed hearing how they were able to apply the learnings from the Shetland bus operation to this trip. So I hope you've enjoyed hearing about it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And we'll have to talk with Ali again after he rows around Antarctica. Madison Eklund is our next guest, and at 26, Madison set off from Minnesota and paddled 1,600 miles solo through some pretty inhospitable territory to Hudson Bay. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. 
And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.